They're going to say something like, well, there's more to it than that. We have to do more things than the gospel, whatever that even means to people at this point. They're going to tell you and I that there's more to it than that, that we should be doing more than proclaiming Christ and Him crucified. But you can proclaim whatever you want. When, they leave, when you leave the blood out of the solution, there is no solution that works. So you can build whatever you want. You can prove whatever agenda that you want. If it's not God's agenda, it's an agenda that's not going to work. And it's my mission, and I hope that those of us who preach in this church have the same sentiment, not to waste these opportunities to minister over the next couple of years as using these times that the Lord has given us as just opportunities to rant about how we don't like this one candidate and how we should vote for this other candidate. There is a godly way to vote. I just said that and I'm not going to dwell on it. We know that there is a godly way. We know what God's heart is for this nation. We know that God does see that unborn child as a living human being. We know that there is a godly fixed version of marriage. And we know to vote for the candidate who supports these things, whether they are a Christian or not. These last couple of presidential elections, both candidates openly supported the LGBTQIA+. And we still had to vote for the one that was less ungodly, if that makes sense. And I feel like that's how it's just going to be going forward. You and I do not vote for pastors or angels. We vote for men who are in just as much in need of a Savior as we are. But there is a way to vote. We all know this. But they can build whatever border they want. It's not going to change the sin problem of mankind. They can put as big of an electric fence on the border as they want. It's not going to change the heart problem of mankind. And this is what God says. This is what the Lord says. You can do whatever you want, but when you leave the blood out of it, or when you water down the power of the blood, don't come into church singing with us that there's power in the blood. When you're going out there talking about how there needs to be more than a work of God. If there's more than a work of God going on, I guarantee you that God has not been allowed to work to begin with. Because God is not going to cohabitate with man's ways. God is only for his way. God only supports his method. And his method is the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's Paul's message in Galatians chapter, the book of Galatians. That's the Holy Spirit's message. In the Bible, but y'all can go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to the book of Galatians. We're going to be finishing our series through the book of Galatians this morning. And ever since, I believe it was June or July, we've started studying the book of Galatians. And now that series is coming to an end... But we're going to read this last little paragraph of the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 6, beginning at the 11th verse. Paul writing, he says, You see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory, 
save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Won't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for this day that you've given us. And God, I'm asking that you allow your Holy Spirit to remain in this place with us. God, I'm asking that you adjust our hearts and our minds right where you need them to be so that we could properly receive what you'd have us receive in this house. God, I ask that you be glorified in this place and that you help me, God, present what I believe you've laid on my heart for this morning because I can't do this in and of myself. I cannot preach from your word in my own charisma, but I need the Holy Spirit to anoint me so that this word could actually mean something this morning. God, we thank you for all that you do for us, and we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. At the end of the day, your mission and my mission dwindles down to this simple thing. Glory only in the cross. Glory only in the cross. Regardless of whatever the world, whether they're religious or secular, regardless of whatever the world out there may tell you, the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified has got to be the source of your power and your joy. A few years ago, we had what many consider to be the worst election season in this nation's history. And if you know history, you know that that could be debated, but it was still pretty terrible. It was a terrible year altogether. On top of the pandemic, which was controversial and terrible all at the same time, you had a terrible and terribly controversial election on top of all of that. And that is just on top of all of the personal struggles that many people dealt with. I remember going back to college uh, that fall in 2020, and I had gone back to a job that I started working the spring before. Well, one day in, they laid me off, and for that entire semester, my student loans were just building on top of each other. I had a scholarship that helped out with a lot of that payment, but still, there was a lot of stresses I did not do too good academically uh, that semester, and there was one stress on top of the other. I wasn't doing good grade-wise, which was terrible uh, as a college student because as far as I knew, I was right where God wanted me to be, but I looked around and there was no real sign of that because everything that could have been going wrong was in fact going wrong, and then there were spiritual issues that I dealt with that I won't go too deep into detail over today. But it was a time of struggle for me. It was a very personal time of struggle for me. I really thought that there was no way of going back, which I thought was terrible because, like I said, I was just do. I thought I was just doing what God wanted me to do. I thought I was going where God wanted me to go, but everything was stacking up against me. Everything that you could have asked 
to be against my case was doing just that. Financially, I was incapable. Spiritually, I was becoming incapable. Academically, I had all but become incapable that semester, and it was absolutely miserable. And it's one of those seasons in life where you're like, you know what, even if there is a worse trial ahead, I'm at least glad that that one is over. And if you've been saved long enough, you probably know what I'm talking about. Just that thing that you never want to go through ever again because it was, as they say, all hell broke loose in my life. And these things happen. These seasons happen. And God does not remove the situation all the time, but he does lead us through those seasons. I mentioned it months ago how God did not take away or extinguish the flames for the heat for the three Hebrew boys in the book of Daniel, but he was there with them as the flames did not consume them. God was with them in the midst of the fire. He didn't take the problem away, but he was there with his children in the midst of the problem, and everybody saw the hand of God working on their behalf. It was a time of struggle, and to this day, I still can't explain to you how God did it, but somehow, all in an instant, at the end of that semester, God had solved all of the problems that I had. I was literally there as all of these problems were being solved, one after the other, and I still cannot explain to you how God did it, even though I watched him solve one problem after the other. Because God works very supernaturally. God works in a way that you and I cannot... And that, that means that he often works in ways that you and I, in our human understanding, just don't understand. But his ways are good, and his ways are for his people. Amen. If you follow the path that God has paved for you, he's going to see to it that you stay on that way that he's made for you. All of this dwindles down to your faith. In times of struggle, whether it's a personal struggle... Or something else, whether it's a big season of temptation coming against you. In those seasons of struggle, the worst thing that you need to do is compromise your faith in Christ. Those are the worst times. Whenever you have fallen short of the glory of God, let's say that you've stumbled back into a past sin. And maybe you are ashamed, maybe you are convicted. That's still the worst time to forsake your faith in Jesus Christ. I've seen people do it, and they're a lot worse off now than they were whenever they were struggling to begin with. Because if you haven't allowed God on your side, or I guess the better word, if you haven't stepped over to God's side, there's nothing to protect you from the lusts of the eyes, from the pride of life. There's nothing to protect you from the devil if you're not shielded with your faith. You're not protected if you're not in Christ. Paul, as you all know, is writing to a group of people who have embraced the law of Moses. That's the law of the Old Testament as a means of salvation. Because what has happened is a few men from the religion that we now call Judaism, we call them Judaizers. These Judaizers have gone into this church at Galatia, which was an old Roman place, and they have begun to convince these Christians that Paul brought the gospel to. These Judaizers have begun to convince these Christians that 
you don't just get saved by faith in Jesus Christ, but you also have to be, you also have to flawlessly keep the law of Moses. Basically, you have to be a good boy to get to heaven. Well, Jesus said that there are none good but God, but you get the smartest secular person and they could convince anybody who is unaware of the gospel truth. A big part of the law of Moses in the Old Testament was the physical circumcision of a child. Now, we know today that there's nothing wrong with circumcision, and it's totally up to the parents. There's nothing deeply spiritual about circumcision, and I trust that I don't have to explain what exactly that is this morning. But back in the Old Covenant, for the Jews, in this, in this personal covenant, this personal relationship between God and the Israelites... Back then, whenever God had introduced this idea of circumcision, that was a physical mark that separated you from the rest of the world. It was a physical sign that you belonged to Yahweh, the God of Israel, that you did not belong to the rest of the world. It was a physical sign that showed, when it came down, if it ever came down to it, that you followed after God. There was nothing really sanctifying spiritually about it. It was just a sign, and it was what God had the Israelites do to their children as a physical sign that they were a separate people. Well, these Judaizers are still hanging on to this idea that you have to be physically circumcised in order to obtain righteousness, which was always false, because this never made anybody righteous. What it made somebody was just someone who outwardly expressed that they followed after God. That's just what the Lord had them do in the Old Testament. But nobody is asked to do anything today because the New Covenant is totally spiritual. Paul in the New Testament would call it a spiritual circumcision of the heart. Because God is not just out to change you physically. God is out to change your heart. And until God fixes your heart problem, spiritually speaking, it doesn't matter how you present yourself physically. The heart problem, as long as sin has germinated in the hearts of men, they will never be righteous. <clears throat> you know, I had somebody, an old college friend, get in touch with me recently. I guess he watched one of our YouTube videos and he, he joking around, he asked me, he said, am I going to have to wear a suit and tie when I go to preach at your church? I'm like, shut up. I don't tell, you know. It's just one of the, we know, we know each other well enough to talk like that, but, you know, it's true. I mean, every time that I come up here to preach, on a Sunday morning at least, I got my little suit jacket and my tie, and I love it how irregular that is even here because anytime I show up to church with a suit and tie everybody knows that I'm preaching because I never wear a suit and tie anywhere else uh, this is basically my super suit I guess at this point it's not legalistic though to dress like this at church I want all of you to know that if, if you think that I'm being legalistic just by showing up in a suit jacket and a tie that's not the case I'm not telling anybody how to dress to church. We all believe in dressing modestly, and that's it. That doesn't mean that you got to come to church in a suit and tie. I'm not telling any of you what to wear to church. This is just what I choose to wear whenever I preach, not even just when I come to church. And there's nothing wrong with that. What would be wrong is if I started saying, as one popular Pentecostal denomination in particular does, 
What would be wrong is if I started telling all of the men in this place that you're not really pursuing a life of holiness until you show up to church in a suit and tie. That is legalism and it is false doctrine because that interferes with the actual sanctification process. The sanctification process, becoming the Christian that God wants you to be, you'll never accomplish that until you truly give your life to the Lord. Because he's the only one that can change you. And this issue is not skin deep. This is a spiritual problem. The problem that you and I have with the sin nature, as we call it today, is only a problem that can be solved by God. The gospel of Jesus Christ goes beyond religious whatever. And a couple of years ago, during that election season, the reason why I brought that up and went on that rabbit trail there for a minute, sorry about that, but the reason I brought up that election season wasn't because, listen, I don't expect the world to have a joy that we have when the world itself is falling apart, because the world has no hope. You can say whatever you want, and you can... Use semantical arguments all you want, but the world has no real everlasting hope like we do. We have a hope that's going to last forever. Eternity began the day that you got saved. All right? You and I have a hope, and that hope is in Christ that is going to last forever. We have a joy that can withstand any issue, and a joy that's going to last forever. And that joy can only be found by faith in Christ. What I saw, though, a few years ago were a lot of Christians, one Christian too many, who were very, very, I don't even know if pessimistic is the right word to use, just absolutely beaten down and not, I don't know, I don't know what other word to use, unnecessarily negative. What I saw were a lot of Christians who were really acting like if the right person was not going to get into office that year, then I guess God was just going to drop dead. That was the mindset that I saw in way too many Christians that year. It was not a season of victory. Never mind the fact that during that chaotic year, the church had the best opportunity to preach the gospel, and we did not do that at all, it seems like. That's a different discussion. It was a season of total defeat for the church of God. God is not leading his church down a path of defeat. Satan, our adversary, he is the defeated one. But God's church is set to be a victorious church. Spotless, as the Bible says. Spiritually spotless. This, we sing that song in many of, of churches today. This joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me, and the world can't take it away. But that year, we really let the world take our joy away. Because the heart of the body of Christ was not gospel-centered. It was worldly-centered. All we cared about was the pandemic from China and the election going on. That's all we cared about, and that's all we could talk about. Anytime somebody got behind behind a pulpit, a pastor, an evangelist, whoever, that's all they could talk about. There was very little gospel presentation in that year from what I saw. And the church specifically suffered because of that. The church suffered because of that. I remember whenever at the beginning of that year all the churches shut the doors and people were making the biggest deal 
about how, oh, whenever we open these doors back up, these churches are going to be packed because it's an hour of crisis. We opened the doors back up and they were emptier, the churches, than before the sickness, the pandemic began. And it shows you a lot about the spiritual state of the body of Christ, how we acted, what we preached that year. But we can't do that this next election season. We can't do that because this world is going to be as confused as can be. I'm no prophet, but let me tell you this. The world is not going to have a clue on what the answer is to the true problem. But the church has access to the true problem. And if we don't give the world the solution to the problem, then we're just going to rinse and repeat what happened a few years ago. And that's not going to happen in the name of Jesus. That's not going to happen. There was a lack of power. There was a lack of joy. Power and joy that we already have access to. That the church has always had access to. You don't need tomorrow's revival to have power and joy as a child of God. And you don't need to wait on any pastor, bishop, evangelist, whoever, to put their hands on your head and shake your head and yell at the top of their lungs to have the power of God and the joy that only a Christian knows in Jesus Christ. There was a lack of power and a lack of joy. So I bring that up. Well, God cares about his church. We all know that. And because God cares about his church, you and I should care about the church as well. Because our mindset ought to be the mindset of the Lord's, not our own. Definitely not this world's mindset, I can tell you that. This world, regardless of their political affiliation, is sealing themselves up for judgment. And the only one who can remove that judgment from them is Jesus Christ. It's the Lord's mindset. We ought to care about our brothers and our sisters who are stumbling spiritually. Paul cares about the state of the Galatians' souls. He writes in this last little paragraph of the book, he says, notice how I've written in big letters with my own hands, and I talked about it a few weeks ago, so I'll just blow through it right now. The reason why that is so important is because he is showing how much he does care about this issue at the Galatians' church. He knows that they should not be accepting the law as a means of salvation, and in emphasizing that he is writing with big letters with his own hands, big letters simply means plain, big plain letters to where everyone could read. I talked about it how back in the day the Greek language had its own little fancy form of cursive that you would write if you were writing to a respected family member or a person in authority. There was a fancy way that you would write sentences back in the day, but... As is the case today, not everybody can read cursive today. Not everybody could read that form of cursive back then. And Paul doesn't just want the elites in the Galatian church to get what he's saying. He wants this truth to be taught and preached to everybody at this church. He's writing in big, plain letters because he does not want a single person in this church to miss what he's having to say to them. We should care in such a manner over the spiritual well-being of young believers and those who we may fear could be slipping in their faith. If you know somebody who you fear is slipping in their faith and are on the verge 
of possibly losing their salvation, renouncing their faith, you need to keep a close eye on that individual, and you need to be praying for this individual, and you need to be discipling that individual as well. Yes, you cannot save their soul, you cannot sanctify them, but you are their brother in Christ, their sister in Christ. You and them are in one big family in Christ. And while, yes, there are many things that you and I are incapable of doing for them, we're not God, but we are Christians, and we ought to be reaching out to those that we think are struggling in their faith. Because there's nothing worse sometimes than a crisis of faith. Those are real, and they don't always end in victory for the child of God. I just learned yesterday about somebody who just last year was pastoring a church. He's now living a lie, is all I'll say about that. That's all I really know, but he's outside of the will of God, and he's not at all doing what God wants him to do. And he's living a lie. And it's tragic. These things are real. And we need to keep tabs on those who are going through these crises of faith. Because we need to lift them up. We need to encourage them. And we need to teach them what the Bible says. We need to encourage them in the faith. That's what Paul is doing to these Galatians. The Judaizers desired to make an example of these Gentiles... They were set to convert the Galatians to a false version of the gospel. Now, Paul would say at the beginning of this book that another gospel does not exist. There is only one gospel, and it is the gospel that God gave, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is the one gospel. There is one gospel. There is not another gospel like it. There is simply one gospel gospel. However, this false version that the Judaizers were preaching, the gospel of circumcision, as it is called, was a false gospel because it taught you to place your faith in your works rather than the grace of God. And God doesn't operate on the basis of your works. He operates on the basis of his grace. And we find that grace at the cross of Calvary. That's where our faith should lie. The Judaizers didn't receive this message of justification from God, but they were motivated by their own religious pride and probably to probably impress others with their external religious showmanship. In other words, their mentality was no doubt, well, let me tell you how good of an evangelist I am. I went to the Galatians and I converted all of them. Religious pride is toxic and it will kill you if you allow it to germinate in your life. There is nothing worse for the believer than religious pride. The gospel goes beyond religious order. It goes beyond being water baptized. It goes beyond taking part in communion. It goes beyond city outreaches. I believe in all of that. It goes beyond quoting scripture. I believe in quoting scripture. Sometimes I'm in the car alone and I'll just start preaching to myself because I need the word of God in that moment. I believe in quoting scripture. But the true spirit of spiritual gospel goes beyond that. Because there is something that you and I have that the world does not have. An atheist can quote the Bible. But you and I are living in the one that the Bible gives us, that the Bible points to. You and I positionally are in Christ. We are covered with his righteousness. We have his holiness because of his grace. 
The gospel goes beyond religious order. Whether or not you are in right relationship with Jesus Christ is an issue that isn't just skin deep. Spiritually speaking, this is a heart issue. Another benefit the Judaizers had in evangelizing their false message was to avoid persecution. The world thinks that it can work its way to heaven. The world thinks that it is enough, that its methods are enough, and legalism tells you that your way is good enough, and that is false. Your ways are not good enough, because the Bible teaches very clearly all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Let's talk about this idea of sinless perfection for a minute. I don't think that the debate is a heaven or hell issue personally, but that doesn't mean that I have to believe it either. Let's look at how God sees sinless perfection. Jesus Christ is the standard of perfection and holiness. Jesus Christ, from the moment he was born up to his sacrifice at the cross, did not sin once. Not once. He was tempted for sure, everybody is tempted. And being tempted in and of itself is not sinful. But giving in to temptation, on the other hand, giving in to temptation to sin, all it takes is one for your soul to be spiritually infected with sin and deserving of eternal damnation because sin will not be invited into the place that God dwells, that place where the Lamb of God is the light, heaven, eternity. Sin will not be welcomed there. And any who have sinned, their soul has been infected by unrighteousness, by wickedness, by holiness. And the only way to have that unrighteousness removed is by expressing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And believing that his blood is enough to take the sin away. That's all you and I have going for us. And that's a good thing. God's not asking you to climb a mountain because you can't. This mountain of perfection, you can't. You stumbled all the way down that mountain the first time that you sinned. And that is all of us. Because all have sinned. Past tense, have sinned. The damage is already done, but there is a solution to the problem. And that solution is Jesus Christ. Amen. However, the Judaizer's message was a message of works. It wasn't a message of God, it was a message of you. You can do it. And the reason why the true gospel, the gospel of by grace through faith, is so offensive is because it absolutely throws this idea of you being good enough out the door and says that God is going to have to come down into your life and change you. And people don't want to change. This world does not want to change. But that change is what is required. There is a change that is necessary. Only the truth brings opposition. The truth throws out this idea of man being capable to live for God in his own strength. The truth highlights man's incapability and need for total dependence on God. The truth demands humility. I once heard Jimmy Swaggart say this, 
The message of the cross brings forth persecution from both the world and the church. It strikes at the very heart of all spiritual pride and self-righteousness. And whether the world is religious or not, the gospel cuts into you. Any time that you open this book, the Holy Spirit will dissect you, it seems like. God will judge you through his word, but that's not a way of condemning. It's a way to build you and I up into the people that God wants us to be. The bitter irony with legalism is that it never leads to law-keeping. In other words, works don't work. Paul says that these people who are preaching this doctrine to you, they themselves don't even keep the law. These preachers who are preaching salvation through the law, they don't even keep the law the way God wants them to. Because God, if you're going to live by the law, you better be living by the entire law. And James would say that if you've broken one law, you've broken all of them. It only takes one compromise of sin to put you and I in the place to where we are by definition sinners. And the only way to get off of that boat is to have Jesus carry us to his. Many in the church glory in self-effort. But with just one reason why the church is in such poor condition today is because of a great reliance on self and not Christ. The cross puts self-effort in its proper place. Paul is not making an attempt to expose what we were, no doubt, the Judaizers' intentions. To use the Galatians as some kind of trophy to show out of the zeal they had for their false religion. The mentality by the Judaizers was 100%, as Paul words it, a fair show of the flesh. The legalists are literally trying to force a message that promotes righteousness through our own ability so that they can boast in themselves. This message that they're bringing to these Galatians is not to glorify God, it's to glorify themselves. These Galatians have been cheated so much and they don't even realize it. All false doctrine does two things. First of all, it depowers God. All false doctrine in some way, shape, or form makes an attempt to take authority and power away from God and to also empower self, to take power away from God and to give that power to us instead. If you look at every single line of false doctrine that is out there, I guarantee you can see at least one of those two things in it. God is not totally enough, and you definitely can be. It's false. Legalism puts God in a place where he is either too powerless or too lazy to deal with us. It also puts you and I in a fictitious place where we are the answer for our own continuing sin problem. It falsely gives you and I God's place in our lives. I once heard an individual, or actually it was Lord Larson, I once heard Lord Larson put, put it this way, the legalist mindset can be basically summed up in this statement, excuse me Jesus while I go work a little bit. That's basically the legalist's mentality. Sorry Jesus, I'll be with you later. 
I'll, I'll have time for you later, but let me go work a little while. Let's go ahead and look at the book of Romans real quick. Turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. Let's look at this real quick. Paul is writing about the struggle against sin in this passage of Scripture. He says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. The law is not the problem in and of itself. You and I are the problem. We have failed to keep God's law. He then continues in verse 7, Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I have not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. And in that verse, Paul is basically saying that the law is basically a flashlight that shows you what sin looks like. The law shows you and I what sin is. The law is a good thing, and it's a godly thing, because we don't know what sin is without the law. The law defines sin, but the law is not the way out of sin. Paul then says in verse 8, But sin, through occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner... Hey, does anyone want to try to read that word for me? All manner of... Do what? Cons- I know, I <laughs> All manner of conspicuance. I'll just roll with that. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. In other words, there was a time in Paul's life, apparently after he had given his heart to the Lord, where he did not walk by faith in the law. But... And it makes sense when you realize that he himself was a Judaizer before he knew Christ. There was a time where that religious temptation came to him, and he started walking by faith in the law again. And what he noticed in his life was that when he got his eyes off of Christ for sanctification and put that faith in the law, these sins that Christ was giving him victory over were coming back to surface in his life. There is no victory over sin in the law, but there is victory over sin in Jesus Christ because there is power in that blood. He would then say in verse number nine, or yeah, well, yeah, he said in verse number nine, for I was alive about the law once, but when the commandment came, in other words, when I had readjusted my faith wrongly back to the law, he says this, sin revived And I died. The law is not the bad guy, but you and I should not walk by faith in the law. The law says, here's where you have fallen short of God's glory. The law does not say, let me save your soul. But Christ gives me the cure for the problem that the law identifies. Law exposes sin Dependence on the law does nothing to take the sin problem away. Paul talks in Romans 7 about the law's relationship to sin. Let's go ahead and look at Romans 7, 
verse, uh, let's look at verse 21. Romans 7, 21. And I'm going to read on a little bit into chapter 8. Paul would say, I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. When I try to do good by walking by faith in the law, evil is still there. The sin is still revived. Verse 22. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the, from the body of this death? In other words, Paul had to learn experientially that the law does not grant victory over sin. And he's presenting to these Romans this idea that whenever you cannot find a way out, when you have learned that the law is not enough to heal the sin problem, he then says in verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then without so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Sin stands condemned in the presence of Jesus Christ. So whatever you're still struggling with, give it to the Lord. And that issue stands condemned. It does not stand a chance against the Lord Jesus Christ. The law gives me the knowledge of my sin. And having that knowledge, I stand before God in total condemnation apart from Christ. But Jesus Christ can remove me from the condemnation. Having knowledge of such good news, why would anybody stick with the law as a means of salvation? And Paul answers that in verse 12 in Galatians chapter 6. He says, lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. You give everybody a doctrine that says you can do it, they won't persecute it. You give everybody a doctrine that says you can't do anything for yourself, only God can. They will persecute that because you've made them out to be the bad guy. At least that's how they see it. The truth of the matter is, even if they're not the bad guy, they are still a sinner. That is the offensive thing about the gospel, is that before Christ has to deliver you from sin, you have to realize that you are naturally a sinner to begin with. If that's not the case, then what need do you have for a Savior to begin with? What need do you and I have for a Redeemer if we don't need to be redeemed? What need do we have for God if we are without sin? But everybody is with sin. The world, the flesh, and the devil hate God. That's not in debate. We all know that. 
God determines that which is true, and the truth of the matter is Jesus is our only hope. The world hates that because they want to be their own hope. Before you and I got saved, we wanted to do things our way. We wanted to be the God of our own life. We, didn't, we may not have called ourselves God, but in practice, before you and I knew Christ, as far as we knew, we were more than enough to make it through. We had dreams, we had aspirations, we had everything that we could have ever asked for, except salvation. And one day the Holy Spirit brought us to that place of conviction, and when he did that, we had an option. Either embrace the saving grace of God in Christ or to turn away from Him. We had an option. Some people say yes, some people say no, but everybody will one day know that option. Everybody, the Bible says. God determines that which is truth. You and I live in a day and age where everybody's making up their own truth and they think that that's what truth looks like. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. God says there is only one truth. And I determined what that truth looks like. And the world cannot stand that. Because the world wants to be self-sufficient. But that's not the truth. The world, the flesh, and the devil. They hate God. They hate the truth. The world system is established on the basis of one lie... After another, people live on the basis of lie upon lie upon lie. There's a legalism dilemma that is brought to us in verse number 13 in Galatians 6. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. They themselves don't keep the law. They don't keep the law, and they're doing this for their own glory. And if that doesn't tell you that legalism is just one massive lie, I don't know what will. Because these legalistic Judaizers, they're not doing this for the glory of God for one thing. And they don't care about the spiritual furtherance of the Galatians' walk with God. They just want to be popular. Their intentions are totally self-righteous. And that shows us already that legalism is nothing more than a lie. It's a lie. It's a scam. And it's a scam that too many Christians believe. And that's a tragedy. It's a scam. It's not the truth. I have no work, no righteousness, no inner holiness to boast in. I, in and of myself, have no godly accomplishment to brag about. I might have shipped one bag of rice to a third world country at church camp that one year, but that does not make me righteous. Amen. It doesn't make me righteous. Nothing wrong with charity, but it doesn't make me righteous. I, in and of myself, have no godly accomplishment to brag about because John Washington, in and of John Washington, is not holy. And let's talk about that word for a minute. We hear it said all the time. We know that it's a word that everybody talks about. We know that holiness is good and that it's godly, but what does it actually mean? Holiness, at its most basic meaning, simply has to do with the idea of separation. 
There's this one scholar who I've read, and I like the way that he defines holiness in the biblical context. He uses that word to describe God as being inherently separate, or he uses the word detached from the fallen attributes of mankind. And that's what God wants all of his people to be, detached from the fallen state of this world. To be holy is to be separated from the world to the Lord. Amen. And God makes us holy progressively. I don't have any holiness in and of myself, but Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law. He has conquered the dominion of sin, and Christ has even conquered the grave. Death itself loses against King Jesus. Paul would say in Colossians 2, verses 14 and 15, that Christ, that Christ not me by the keeping of God's law, but Christ, has blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. In other words, Christ left my condemnation in the grave. When he died, I died with him. And when he arose, I arose with him, leaving my sin nature behind me, leaving my sin nature in the grave. And then in verse 15 he says, And having spoiled principalities and powers, that's talking about the kingdom of Satan, having spoiled their goods, Christ, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. And Jesus has handled the devil problem. Jesus has handled the flesh problem. And one day he's coming back to handle the world problem once and for all. As the almighty king of kings and lord of lords. If that doesn't encourage you to glory in the cross alone. I got nothing else to say to you then. Glory in the cross. Glory in the cross. That's where the glory is found. The cross has made me dead to the world. Christ may not be that millennial reign king of this earth just yet. But he can separate me from the dominion of sin. From the overall influence of this world. Christ can do it. Charles Spurgeon once said. About, the, about this passage of scripture. Among scholars. Paul might have taken. An eminent position. Yet though he must have felt. A human delight. In the talents which God had given him. And must have known. That he possessed them. He still says concerning them. But God forbid that I should glory. He seems to take all that he had and that all that he did and all that he was and put it away and come forward with no other thing on his lips and no greater love in his heart except this, Jesus Christ crucified for the sons of men. Jesus to be the greatest among the nations. Jesus, the slaughtered lamb, to be made for people, their life from the dead, their salvation from going down into the pit. Before, and for a long time, before I had accepted the call of God on my life for ministry, and a lot of you already know this, I wanted to be involved with films. I wanted that, that was my goal, that was my passion. I wanted to be a... Uh, uh, film director 
that was my end goal in life, even as a Christian there for a short time. But as I grew in the Lord, the Lord had made it apparent to me that His will for my life was ministry. And I hear a lot of people say that God can use talents that we have and use them for His glory. I believe in that. But what I also believe is that if you and I are not willing to sacrifice those talents for the furtherance of God's kingdom, then we're not in the right. We need a heart check if we will take that to the grave. As though to say that God has to use my talents or I won't follow the will that he has for me. John Washington might not ever make a movie a day in his life. And that is okay, because God's plans for me are greater than my plans. God's plans for you are greater than your plans. Paul had everything going for him in life before he knew Jesus Christ. He he was not just a Judaizer. He was a well-respected Judaizer, a Roman citizen by birth. He was a privileged man. He was a respected man, and he persecuted Christians. So he was really respected in the religious world. But he put all of that to the side the day that he said yes to Jesus. Many historians believe that had Paul continued down that life of religious secularism, that he could have one day become the head of the Pharisees, that he could have one day become the man in charge of that Jewish religious order. You know what he did when he said yes to Jesus? He put all of the opportunities, all of the promotion, he put it all away because he had decided to follow after Jesus. He made a decision to follow after Christ and that cost him his world. But you know what? Paul was perfectly okay with that because it's better to walk after God and end up in a jail cell than to walk with this world and end up in hell. Paul was content. Paul was content. To him, walking with Jesus was his reward. And that reward surpassed whatever promotion this world could have given him. Because Paul knew God. Our main priority of praise, thanksgiving, gratitude, and worship is in the cross. And the one who died for us on it. We don't worship the cross like a graven image. We don't come and offer sacrifices to this literal wooden beam every every Sunday morning. We don't look at the cross like an idol. We don't do that. But we certainly do not separate Jesus from what he did for us. That would be foolish. We cannot separate Jesus from his finished work at the cross. I once heard a pastor say this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the greatest I told you so in history. Because the resurrection says to us that everything that he said would happen on the cross did actually happen. The resurrection, they say, is the greatest evidence for Christianity being true, and that is exactly the case. Because the resurrection shows that everything Jesus said he was, everything that was prophesied about him, Everything that was said about conquering the dominion of sin, conquering the dominion of death, hell, and the grave, all of that is true. That's what the resurrection shows me. The resurrection literally points me to faith, 
in Christ than what he did at the cross. Paul has strongly been criticizing the legalistic doctrine of uncircumcision, and rightly so. But don't think that because you're not circumcised or of the law that you're perfectly fine already. Paul deals with that a little bit. The Christian life demands that whoever pursues godliness be both dead to the law and alive to Christ. So what if you're not a legalist? That's a good thing. What does your walk with God look like? Being not a legalist is only a part of this Christian life. You have to be separated from the law, but separated to Jesus Christ at the same time. It's interesting, I've heard this analysis be made a few times about my generation and the generation that came before me. Those of you who grew up in the 20th century probably know what I'm talking about, how the way church culture mostly was in many denominations, a lot of people did have a legalistic urge when it came to living for God. A lot of the doctrine was you cannot be sanctified until you come to the altar. A lot of the doctrine was you're not really living a holy life until the men keep their hair short and their faces shaven or until the women keep their hair grown out and always wear dress skirts to church. A lot of that was legalistic. And you know, even some circles today are still that way. But in my generation, what you see is a total reverse opposite that's just as bad. The total opposite of legalism is what is called antinomianism. And whereas legalism is the idea that you can be holy by what you do and just how you outwardly express yourself, antinomianism is this idea that because the grace of God is so big that it doesn't really matter what sins you do in your life because we're under grace, we're not under law, and that repentance is not really that big of a deal and that God kind of bats his eye to the sin in our life because we're under grace. Well, that's a false view of grace. The grace of God does not ignore my sin. It takes my sin away. And sometimes, a lot of the time, most of the time, really all the time, that requires God showing me that I am a sinner. Now, if you're going to call God a legalist for exposing the sin problem in your life, I think you have a problem. Because God is not operating on the basis of law. He is operating on the basis of sin Conquering grace. Circumcised or uncircumcised, legalist or not a legalist, the only person who is justified is the one who has experienced the new birth or who has been born again. Whoever is, by definition, a new creature. In verse 16, Paul is not confessing peace and mercy over their lives when he says peace and mercy be upon you. This isn't some this isn't the modern word of faith language. The fact is, if you are saved, you are already you already have the peace of God. You already have the mercy of God. Don't let go of it. Paul knows persecution over the truth, unlike the Judaizers. 
He said that he bore the marks of Christ. Paul had been physically tormented because of the gospel. And even in his last words, in verse number 18, Brethren, with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, or in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, be with your spirit. Amen. Even in his last words to this letter, he gives Christ his due glory. He gives glory to Jesus Christ. What would happen to the Galatians after receiving this letter? What would what would become of them after Paul wrote back to them? Would they would they forsake the law and go back to faith in Christ, or would they stay in their legalistic way? I don't know. I have no clue. I don't know. But the Galatians, whoever they were, have been dead for hundreds of years. You and I are living in a culture that faces the same problems that they did. So I don't know whether or not the Galatians would go back to Christ after receiving this letter. But what will you and I do now that we've received this exhortation? The Apostle Paul has been dead and he's been with Christ in heaven for centuries. And we know that all of scripture is inspired by God. So keeping that in mind, this is not just a man writing to us. This is God, the Holy Ghost, using a man to teach to us the importance of faith. Not just faith, but faith in the proper object. Faith in the proper person. What will you and I do now that we've read this exhortation? Christian, what is your priority? Is your priority Christ and Him crucified, or is it something else? And for the sake of, for the, for, uh, since we're talking about it, do you know Jesus Christ to begin with? Do you know the Lord? Paul would say in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What do I have to do to be justified in God's eyes? Do I have to jump over a mountain and swim up a stream? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's already conquered every mountain. He already swam up every stream at the cross of Calvary on your behalf. He's handled the biggest problem you could ever have going for you, your sin problem, 2,000 years ago at the cross of Calvary. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We glory in the cross. That's our priority. That's what we take pride in. That's what we boast in. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we glory in. We glory in the cross. Whenever I was in high school, I took a medical procedures class. And one day we did an experiment with how a nurse and a doctor should officially wash their hands. Now Tabitha is here, so if I say something wrong, she's going to start judging me. Uh, so I'm going to try to remember this as well as I can, as well as I can, and then I'll shut up. I know what time it is. Uh, but when I was in high school, 
In this class, we did an experiment on how to properly wash your hands. What our teacher did for us was she squirted some kind of lotion-esque thing or whatever. She sprayed something on our hands, and then we had to wash our hands. Now, what's interesting is that before we washed our hands, all of the lights in the room were turned off, and she had this neon light or blue light, black light, whatever you would call it, and she shined that light on our hands. Now, what that liquid was was basically liquefied germs, and I don't know why anybody would have that in a bottle, but she did, and this is what we used for this experiment, but it was literally germs as a liquid somehow, and we could see whenever she would show that black light in that dark room on our hands, how our hands, everywhere that was infected or whatever, everywhere on our hands that the germs were, that spot would be glowing on our hands. And you know, when that is just sprayed on your hands, your whole hand is lighting up whenever the black light is shown over you. So we would all wash our hands, and people would like be washing their hands very aggressively. You had everybody in this class. You had football players. I mean, whenever, whenever everybody went to the sink, we just like just almost ripped our hands off because we were washing our hands so violently. We wanted to get all of these germs off, and we were determined to get these germs off because we were going to do good in this class. Well, everybody washed their hands. We followed the procedure. We got our fingernails, the little webbing areas, as I've heard them called. We washed, 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 washed our own hands. Then she turned the light off again, and she showed that black light on our hands. And while there were clean spots, everybody, nobody in that classroom had hands that were totally clean from the germs. It didn't matter how hard we washed our hands, how long we spent washing our own hands, we could not get all of the germs off of our hands. And that is what the life of a legalist is like spiritually. You cannot handle the sin problem. You cannot take the sin out of your own life. But, but Jesus, if you let Jesus wash you, if you let Jesus cleanse you, if you let Jesus deal with you, not only will he do a better job than you, he'll actually get the job done. He'll take care of all of the sin problem. It's one thing to go into this Christian life thinking that you can do it, and then learn through experience, through a failure, that you are just not strong enough yourself but it's another thing whenever you allow Jesus to take total dominance of your life. And whenever you allow him to wash you. We depend on the cross. We believe in the blood. Because unlike us, there is certainly power in the blood. Amen. 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 Well, Lord, we once again thank you for this day. God, I ask that you be with us throughout this week, that you bring us back safely tonight. We thank you, Lord, for what we've learned from this great book in your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for sending your only son down to this world out of the love that you have for each of us. While we were yet sinners, 
Christ came down to die for us anyways, Lord. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy, Lord. And if there are, if there is any in here who do not know you personally, God, I ask that you deal with them over the course of this week, God, and lead them to that saving faith in who you are and what your Son has accomplished for us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you do for us. And Lord, we thank you for the cross. That's what we glory in. In Jesus' name.